In a field a few miles southwest of the city of Lexington in Kentucky, a sheep is quietly grazing in the shade. This is a very special sheep. As it is just a sheep, it doesn't know that it is special. But it is part of a rare breed selected specifically for this task. It is protected by high security fences on all sides, keeping it safe from any predators and keeping the site safe from human interference. The sheep is part of a flock that is critical to the largest solar power installation in Kentucky, a 50-acre site owned by Kentucky Utilities and currently housing over 40,000 solar panels. The sheep are controlling vegetation on site, an eco-friendly and cost-efficient practice known as solar grazing. And the best sheep for this particular job are not seen very often nowadays. They are a heritage breed known as Shetland sheep. They are small and they grow slowly, and so are less appealing to a large-scale farming operation. But they are known to be very healthy, resilient, and they live a long time. And their small stature means that they can comfortably graze beneath solar panels. How and why these sheep came to be here is a story that has its origins thousands of miles away and three centuries in the past. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher, and this episode I've asked for a special guest to join me as the co-host. Hi, I'm Rory Harris. I'm the executive producer at Reby Media, and I've been living here in Kentucky for over 30 years. Like our story, Rory also has his origins thousands of miles away, growing up in Birmingham in England, and then relocating to the Bluegrass State as part of his former work in the mining industry. Kentucky is traditionally a coal state, although that industry is now in rapid decline. The state is in the process of transitioning to generating energy from clean, renewable sources. As part of this, local utility companies have been investing in solar farms and battery storage. The sheep that have been drafted in to manage the largest of these solar farms have come from a nearby historical village and farming community, which is run by a non-profit and open to the public. I first went to Pleasant Hill when I moved to America in 1990. It was a rite of passage and is part of the community. It has grown a lot since then and now hosts dinners, weddings, harvest festivals, lambing events like Brunch with the Babies and the prestigious Chamber Music Festival of the Bluegrass. The village was established by a religious movement commonly called the Shakers, who are known for their music, their dancing and their vows of celibacy. Some listeners might also be familiar with the minimalist Shaker style of furniture. They were founded by a woman called Anne Lee, Mother Anne Lee as she came to be known, who was born in Manchester, England in 1736. Her decision turned out to be critical to the energy revolution happening in Kentucky today, nearly 300 years later. To tell this story properly, we needed to explore the technology, the history, and even the animal husbandry that brought it all together. And that meant an unusually varied lineup of guests, an historian, 
a farmer, and the technology manager for a utility company. But first, let's go back to the beginning. So the Shakers in the United States, which is also known as the United Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, is really their official name, came from Mother Anne Lee and her followers who came to the United States in the 1770s from Manchester, England. And they're a group that had some different religious beliefs. They kind of come from a more Quaker tradition of pacifism. This is William Updike president of natural and cultural resources at Shaker Village. Some of the beliefs that the Shakers held are a duality of God, which means that there is both a male and a female manifestation of God. And what that allowed them to do that's a little different than other faiths of that time, and even some today, is to have an equality of genders and of races, which is very important to Shakerism. Uh, Shakers get Kind of the one thing everyone knows about Shakers is that they were celibate. That is certainly an important thing to to bring up, but it's not the only thing. And and that is, um, we kind of like to highlight some of the other things that they have. They're really very forward thinking people that we would find very modern if you were to, to meet some of them today. They even benefited from running water piped into kitchens from a local spring, which meant that they were less affected by cholera outbreaks than most at the time. So it's a site that has been known for looking into the future, right from the start. So one of the important pieces of the Shaker faith was music and then the dance that went along with that. They got the name Shakers from their enthusiastic dancing. It's where the the name comes from. Um, They're also known as the Shaking Quakers. That's where that derives from. The dancing originally was more of um, kind of a free form and then eventually throughout the 19th century became more organized, uh, similar to what you might think of as a square dance today. And the Shaker movement is actually still in existence, with a small number of Shakers still living in Maine, but the movement is long past its peak. Which was around the time of the American Civil War in the 1860s. And there are about a dozen Shaker sites left today mostly museums and historical sites. The movement came to Kentucky in 1805 as the land opened up to the settlement during the westward expansion. Here at Pleasant Hill, our village was established in 1809. At its present site, though there were some Shakers in this area you know, in the probably as early as 1808. Those folks were originally from the Northeast and then they converted some of the local residents here to Shakerism and uh, established this site beginning in 1809 by acquiring property kind of surrounding the area, ultimately having about 5,000 acres. Today, the village preserves about 3,000 acres of that 5,000 that the Shakers owned. The site includes the historic village, a 72-guest-room hotel, a 100-seat restaurant, an operational riverboat, and about 30 miles of walking trails. There is something for everyone. And in a normal year, the village gets 50 to 60,000 visitors. They might come to see the historical buildings, enjoy the music program, and to see various exhibits on the Shakers and their products. This village declined in the 18, kind of after the American Civil War in the 1860s. The Shakers that remained eventually began to sell off property, ultimately selling all of the property that was here. And the last Shaker died in 1923. 
at her death, there was always some idea that there should be a Shaker Museum here, and it had sort of fits and starts throughout the early part of the 20th century. Ultimately, in 1960, an organization was founded, Shaker Town at Pleasant Hill. This was to preserve and protect what remained of the Shaker community. At that time, there were 34 historic buildings here, and those ranged from everything from large dwelling houses to barns. Those buildings are what we maintain to this day as the core of the village, and really that was what we were established to do, was to maintain the, the, the historic village, and then to interpret that to the public. And it really does have something for everyone. Although this is primarily a story about agriculture and energy, the architecture of the village will definitely interest some of our listeners. So our meeting house, one of our most important buildings, is it was constructed in 1820. And it's a timber frame building with brick nogging in between the, the, the frame members for insulation. And one of the unique features of it is that it's 40, 40 by 60 feet in size. About 12 meters by 18 meters. On the interior, there are no interior posts on the first floor coming all the way down, which allowed for that exuberant dancing that the Shakers did. The way they executed that was a series of timber trusses in the attic of that building. And it's kind of one of the most unique buildings in regards to, to that type of construction here in Kentucky. Um, we believe that a lot of that is influenced by a book that was published in the early 1800s by a man named Owen Biddle. I think it's called The Young Carpenter's Assistant. And if you go and look at that builder's guide, you can find trusses in that book that are, are very similar to those that are up here in our meeting house. And then if you start to look at some of the other architectural features in that book, you start to see them around the village as well. But it is the children's favourite, the farm, that is the key part of this story. And we will hear from the farm manager, Mike Moore, in a minute. But first, a message from one of our episode sponsors, Ground Force. Ground Force Shawco are market leaders in excavation support safety, providing a wide range of products from trench boxes to high-end hydraulic propping solutions. With 40 years of experience, its people provide first-class support from initial inquiry to project completion. Linked with an award-winning technical service department, Groundforce Shawco fulfills customers' excavation solutions throughout the UK, Ireland and mainland Europe. To find out more about Groundforce Shawco, visit www.vpgroundforce.com. And now back to the episode, and back to the farm at Shaker Village. My name is Mike Moore, and I am the farm manager at Shaker Village. We have a really diverse farm. We do a little bit of everything. Our farm footprint is about 118 acres, which is all certified organic, and that's going to include a two-acre orchard that we manage, a acre-and-a-half garden that we manage for an on-site restaurant, and then the rest is all pastures where we do cattle, sheep, pigs, chickens, ducks, a few goats and some draft horses as well. So it's a lot. The main goal of the farm is providing food for the trustees table. It's an on-site restaurant and the farm produces anything from 7,000 to as much as 12,000 pounds of food for it each year. That's 3,000 kilos to 5,500 kilos for you metric types. So the farm in itself has been around 
pretty much from the time of the Shakers. So our garden has been producing vegetables in the same area for nearly 200 years. Now it's lived different phases. It's been a living history farm where it was just horse and plow. Um, but 2014, 2013, we began to say, hey, how can we use the Shaker story to create something that's a little more relevant, a little more real that our guests, our visitors can take home with them. And now, of course, with the solar farm that Mike is providing sheep for, his animals are helping provide something for people's homes in a very real sense, electricity. But how did that relationship come about? Well, um, it actually began through a tour William Updike, our uh, vice president, did with LG&E and KU. LG&E and KU is Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities, the solar farm owner. And... um. You know, they had a problem where they've got grass and they need grass to either be mowed or eaten. And William just so happened to say, hey, we know sheep and we may be able to help you out with that. And Mike's farming philosophy turned out to be just perfect for the job. We had a few sheep, so we actually had to scale up quite a bit. We ended up buying a flock of Shetland sheep. It's a primitive breed, heritage breed that's actually in decline. It's it's getting better. Its numbers are recovering, but we try to focus on livestock that need a helping hand. Um, and that's usually varieties that, you know, are, are kind of rare today. So we went with 25 Shetland sheep to get it started. So one of the, the things with solar panels, especially fixed solar panels, is you've got various heights and the lower end of the panels tend to be pretty small. So I was Instantly, I knew I needed a small sheep. I needed it to navigate, not interfere with wires, um, any of the infrastructure of the panels. So Shetland sheep hit my mind almost instantly when we had the first discussions of grazing at the solar field. Mike says that it's a simple, natural partnership between farmers and solar energy production, but that it hadn't crossed his mind before starting this job. Myself, I live on the outskirts of London, And a lot of us do not have a great deal of experience with farm animals. But after living in Kentucky for so long, I have learned that the people have a deep pride in their agricultural heritage. And some of it must have rubbed off on me. Because my first thought was, why not goats? Ooh, that's a a good question. Sheep are not as curious as what goats would be, where goats are browsers. They're going to want to try to taste a little bit of everything. And that could be your wiring so you know goats naturally just want to chew on pretty much fences clothes i mean anything you put in front of them and that could be a big risk and hazard to a solar farm sheep are a little more docile a little more specific to what they want to eat and don't usually jump outside of their box too often so goats will throw you some curveballs where sheep are a little more consistent predictable The solar farm is seven miles or 11 kilometers away, so Mike can easily take them there in a trailer. He leaves them at the site from April to December, checking up on them regularly to make sure they are healthy and happy and that they've got plenty of grass. With the expansion of solar power in Kentucky, Mike sees opportunity not just for Shaker Village, but for other farmers, especially small ruminant farmers looking to supplement their finances with the solar grazing movement. There's even a national organisation now, the American Solar Grazing Association. And there is another benefit to putting your sheep on a solar farm, the security. 
So I think one thing for sheep, farmers, grazers, they're going to love is it's a federal law to have these fenced in. So I've got a 10 foot chain link fence all the way around this site. So predation, you know, initially I was a little worried, but once getting there, something's going to have to work real hard to get into that site. And I just don't think it's likely. Um, so it's a relief, honestly. I know there the sheep are, are more than safe where here open pasture, stray coyote fox could be a, you know, an issue for me. Don't see that happening at KU. Before we hear from Kentucky Utilities, here is a message from one of this episode's sponsors, Enscape. Support for this episode comes from Enscape. Enscape is an intuitive real-time rendering and virtual reality plugin for the built industry. The company saw that one of the biggest challenges for designers was not being able to communicate their design ideas efficiently and effectively to project stakeholders. The options at the time were either expensive or time-consuming. Enscape is the solution. Now, designs can be experienced long before they are built. The real-time rendering tool plugs into your modeling software, giving you an integrated visualization and design process. Enscape makes visualization accessible. It is the easiest and fastest way to turn your building models into immersive 3D experiences. Just recently, Enscape released its brand new 3.0 version. It has a new look for an even better design experience. To find out more, or to sign up for a free 14-day trial, go to the Enscape website. That's podcast.enscape3d.com. And now back to the episode. So what about the other side of this solar story, the utility company itself? We spoke to Aaron Patrick at Kentucky Utilities. I'm the manager of technology research and analysis for Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities. Uh, I manage our uh, research partnerships with several external research organizations, uh, and I'm responsible for researching technologies that uh, change the way we provide services to our customers, and also researching technologies that change the way customers consume our services. Aaron is in charge of looking for technological solutions that improve their ability to provide reliable power or lower costs. But what kind of technological innovations? Well, uh, the first I'd think of is, is Kentucky's largest lithium-ion battery site. That is a two megawatt hour battery, which was very large in 2016 when it was installed. But the pace of that sector is incredible, and the company is looking at installing a 400 megawatt hour energy storage system. So they are by no means done with solar and battery technology. So we are actually using that battery uh, to store solar power by day and discharge that solar power by night. The battery can also help with uh, some problems that are introduced by solar, including the intermittency and volatility of, of solar power. So as, as solar power comes and goes because a cloud moves across the horizon, that can introduce frequency and, and, and voltage problems. And we use our battery to try to smooth out those problems they also have one of three carbon capture systems at operational power plants in the United States. It was a $22 million research project that we partnered with the University of Kentucky and the Department of Energy on. Uh, we started that research project in 2006 and we built the site in uh, 2014 and uh, it remains operational today. That is a 0.7 megawatt carbon capture facility that captures the post-combustion oxide at E.W. Brown Generating Station. 
a major, long-standing coal power plant that has recently begun adding solar generation, with a total generating capacity of 464 megawatts. So that's um, what my team does a lot of, of work in. And that involves a lot of data analytics, mostly, and modeling and forecasting. So we're, you know, we're looking at you know, how do we achieve our objectives of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 80%, and how do we go farther than that? How do we, what, what technology solutions will enable us to get beyond 80%? That's 80% compared to 2010 levels by 2050 and an interim goal of 70% by 2040. KU's energy mix is about 11 megawatts of energy from solar and about seven gigawatts from other sources. So it is still a very small portion of their portfolio. But that is what my teammates and I are, are looking at pretty aggressively is how much uh, solar we'll be adding in the future uh, and, and what are the economics of that. And the economics are helped in part by Mike Moore and his sheep. Yeah, that was about two years ago. Um, I took over uh, management of our uh, R&D department about three years ago. And as, as part of that, I, I got to give a lot of tours and spend a lot of time out at, out at the solar site. And as I was out there, I, I happened to notice the, the folks that were maintaining the grass at the solar site. Uh, obviously, they have they have lawn mowers, but because the panels are so low to the ground, because there's electrical equipment and wiring, and then the posts holding up the panels, most of the work actually needs to be done with weed eaters. And then, because the panels are overhead, these guys are bent over really uncomfortably using these trimmers. It's a pretty labor-intensive process, and so for those forty-four thousand five hundred solar panels, you know, you had thirty or so folks out there. Uh, weed eating is really labor intensive. Rory, you're the businessman. What do you think of that? I'm sure that the sheep cost less than a crew of landscapers armed with weed eaters. But I think the real savings come from not having to schedule mowings, pay invoices, providing access, and managing the process. I imagine the crew are very happy not to be sweating buckets with back breaking work while dodging the occasional snake catching up on some sunbathing. Very true. We do get quite a lot of poisonous copperheads in that area who really don't like being woken up suddenly. And uh, we just started thinking, well, gosh, uh, you know, is there, is there not a better way to do that? And I, you know, I looked online at what some utilities were doing, and I did see that you know, one company had, had, had started working on little battery-powered robots that would go around and mow the grass. And honestly, that seemed way more trouble than it was worth. And uh, I thought, you know, even though my department's role is supposed to be forward-looking in technologies, I thought, you know what, we need to look back in time at how this would have been done a couple hundred years ago, because that's the really, honestly, the easiest way. So, funded by Kentucky Utilities, Shaker Village bought a couple of thousand dollars worth of sheep, known for the fineness of the wool they produce, and rented them to cut the grass under solar panels. Not a bad deal. And it turns out 40 to 50 sheep are perfect for a 10-acre site. And uh, so it made for a really perfect partnership. When we set out uh, on this partnership, I, I was worried that, you know, the sheep might you know, knock the panels or start chewing on wires or, you know, I, I couldn't imagine you know, what bad things might happen. They might escape and it might be mayhem. That's the last thing I wanted. And so we kind of went at this uh, real easy and, you know, our, our, our agreement and 
contracts. It says really clearly that they will provide 24-7 assistance if something bad were to happen. And now over a year later, we've never, we've never called that number. <laughs> we've never needed help. It honestly, it just works so well. Aaron also mentions how the security fences designed to protect the solar panels also protect the sheep. We also have a really robust set of security cameras on the site. You may have seen our announcement last week. We, we've started just, just live streaming those security cameras to, to, to YouTube because they're so much fun to watch. It's called YouTube. That would be E-W-E-Tube. And we've linked to it in our show notes. The idea came about after members of staff constantly bombarded the solar team with requests for photos of the sheep. They realised that members of the public might be interested. Although this site is the largest in Kentucky, in 2022 in Hardin County, we will be building uh, something about 10 times larger. We currently have an RFP out on the streets to add new generation capacity and we're evaluating uh, those proposals as they come in. And I'm very confident that in the future there will be even more solar. The solar industry is going from strength to strength and development is at such a pace that the expected 30-year lifespan of a panel means that it will easily become obsolete in that time frame. It's been remarkable to see first the cost reductions in solar power, even since the, you know, in, in, in 2009, for example, solar power was probably 10 times more expensive than, than alternative options like coal and gas. And today we're seeing solar prices come in at competitive prices, which is really exciting. The other thing that's really remarkable is, as you suggested, the, the improvement in the solar panels. You know, just in our, our last two solar sites, our 2016 site and the site uh, that, that we have in, in Simpsonville, which is a you know 2018-19 era site, we saw a tremendous improvement in the panel efficiency, uh, looking at about 18.3% efficiency for the 2016 version. Now we're looking at 18.8% efficiency in the uh, 2018 version. The actual model of ownership is changing as well. The plant at Simpsonville is a community solar project. Where anyone can call and pay $5 a month to, to, to have their, their slice of that solar farm. But what we've seen is as we're building that, we're building that site on order. So when customers call in and say, I would like part of that solar farm, I would like three shares in the solar farm, et cetera, we, we build it for them. And so it wasn't all built at once, it's built been built in stages and we're now on the third and fourth stage and we're um, taking subscriptions for the fifth stage. But I mention that because it's, it's really remarkable the size of section one from the, the 2018 is larger. It's three acres and section two is a little smaller and section three is a little smaller and section four is a little smaller and you might think oh well we're giving giving the subscribers less than each fit. No, the panels are just better as each year goes by. And so actually we're making each section has the same potential output. But its footprint, its physical footprint, is getting smaller every year. And it's so much different than say a project where you build it all at once. And so you kind of, you, you, you place a large order and you get all those panels at once. But building it this, this community subscription-based way has caused you know, an opportunity just to see that efficiency. And, and, and when we walk through that site, you, know, you, you can really see it firsthand. You're like, well, let's walk through section one and let's walk over to section two and you'll notice it's a little smaller, but it has the same output. 
So the future of solar is secure. The technology is evolving. The delivery is dynamic. But is there a future in solar grazing? Will the traditional approach have a place? So it's still a, it's still a research project. Uh, we're still kind of in the testing phase. But but yes, I met with a shepherd uh, just yesterday, actually, at another one of our solar sites in Simpsonville, uh, getting the scope of getting the lay of the land. And yes, I do intend to proceed with replacing mowing at that site with, with grazing as well. And I, I quite frankly think that this is a trend that will catch on. We as Kentuckians are, are very proud of our agricultural heritage. And I, I think, you know, beyond environmental sustainability, one thing that's, that's important about the solar grazing projects is it, it returns the landscape to you know, what it might have been, say, 100 or 200 years ago, uh, a grassland with, with, with animals grazing on it. It's a really, it's a really beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful marriage of the future, but also with our past. And it really helps to, I think, mitigate the degree of, of, of negative impact that, that solar could have on the environment. You know, solar takes up a lot of land. It takes a lot of land to generate uh, enough power to have really any kind of meaningful impact on our electricity portfolio. And this project, we think, helps reduce that that impact by just reintegrating the solar site with its, its, its native surroundings. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Ross McPherson, Will North, John Young, Velo Mitrovic, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. And co-hosted by me, Rory Harris, executive producer at Reby Media. Sound engineering was by Ross McPherson, and our own hungry little lamb is John Young. Special thanks to our episode partners, Enscape and Ground Force Shawco. And thanks also to the Shaker Village of Pleasant Hill and to Kentucky Utilities. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.